everybody, and welcome to the Medevac Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Myers, joined by our other host, hello, David Reed. Before we hop into our guest today, or who they are today, rather. Guests. Guests. Plural. Yeah, plural. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure you are liking, commenting, or interacting with the video somehow. It's a price for the show. You have to pay it. I was just going to say it. You almost missed that part. It's required. You have to. Comment below. <laughs> There's going to be some some interesting questions to ask these guys because we have two guests today. And who are they? Jason Clausen and Eric Waller. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for being here today. So Jason is a uh, 20-year Army veteran, spent some time flying in Blackhawks, directly opposing my old helicopter, the Pavehawk. Right. I do have uh, some Pavehawk time too. Ooh. We'll talk <laughs> about 20 that. 20 years. Yeah. You have a couple years time. on me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a couple years. And then Eric Waller, 68 whiskey in the Army for the same amount of time, right? 20 Yeah, 20 so uh, years. year 17 right now, currently 17. in the Texas National Guard. Awesome. Awesome. Well, welcome, fellas. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. We're going to... U.S. Army. In. Yeah. U.S. Oh. Army. I feel comfortable being here for once. Yeah. You can right. talk the same language I now. Tell, he said 68 whiskey, and I was like, I know what that is. <laughs> I know this. I know, <laughs> I know this lingo. That's <laughs> Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. We got a duo, which is going to be great. So um, first and foremost, we'll go around the horn a little bit and just why the military, why the Army? I originally enlisted in the Air Force. My dad was Air Force, retired, worked jets, and I wanted to do the same thing. So I did that, and then I got out, 9-11 happened, wanted to get back in. Hmm. Air Force wasn't taking prior service, so I got an Army. And I went uh, Army Aviation. I had been introduced to helicopters through contract work. Yeah. It's like, I, that's where I want to be on helicopters now. So I linked up with the medevac unit out of Reno and I became part of that. So. Why does the military hate prior service? <laughs> I just want to ask that because that is like, you run into that all the time. It's like, no, 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 we don't take your Army kind here. Well, which is weird because you were in the Air Force and you thought about rejoining the Air Force, right? What what I was told is the Air Force didn't want people who didn't like it enough to stay in the first time. Uh, so it's a spiteful thing. It's a bit right. of it. We don't want you with all right. your life experience. Yeah. Here. It's like, oh, you're previously. You thought there was more options out there? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's not. You had your chance with us. That's right. Just a guy's ready to take your place. Yeah. That's a chip on your shoulder for being yeah. a military branch. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, our, our buddy Adam had the same thing. He was, yeah. he was Army before, and then he turned Air Force and. They were like, you have three jobs to pick. Like, you can have three jobs if you're prior enlisted. Oh. And you're like, what the heck? Uh, he was a ranger beforehand. They're like, you can be a You could be a mechanic. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Translates well. Yeah. Yeah, I should have joined the Air Force first. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that was a culture shock big time. Air Force, we went TDY. You know, the hotel rooms had sheets, pillows, towels, whatever. Yeah, lot- Army, my first field exercise, I didn't have anything. And I even told the guys, I said, doesn't the hotel have all that stuff? <laughs> we ain't going to a hotel. We're going to live in the sand. Yeah. That's a, that's a culture uh, shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was at ETC for two years, and that was my introduction to the Army. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Man. Rough. That's quite a change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I stayed in the Air Force. I mean, right. Somebody needs to enjoy the five-star hotels. I mean, <laughs> steak and lobster. <laughs> that's why you've always been the smartest of the hosts. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> and you, how about... Yeah, You're so the Air Force came calling first, right? I think mm-hmm. they get the ASVAB scores first, right? So they're the first on. <laughs> they're, they're like, they are really good at that. Coaching. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
the recruiter was selling me on security forces. Uh, mm-hmm. I was not big on that. So he was like, hey, there's this pipeline. Called, it was like the one Tango, two X-ray. It was a pararescue pipeline, right? Sure. Kind of like the 18 X-ray in the Army. Yeah. I said, hey, that's great. He started, right, let's go do this swim and run and pull up. So past all that. So I joined while I was my senior year of high school. I was supposed to go to the Air Force, mm-hmm. uh, play in football. I had a small meniscal tear in my knee, went and had it scoped, and the Air Force flipped out. They're like, uh, oh, man, we're going to push your ship date back a year. Yeah, I've been on, been on the wait list for almost a year to go to basic. You know, I walk outside, and there's an Army recruiter like, hey, psst, hey, hey, hey kid. He's doing a smoke deal. a cigarette yeah. up against it's the exactly wall. Right. Leather like, jacket. Hey, <laughs> you want to do something medical, I can talk to you about that. So uh, I, I got his card and I went home and I decided I was going to play Division II football. Mm. And then uh, I got there and realized I was not quite as, as big as or as fast as I, I thought uh, in high school. So I called the Army recruiter uh, shortly after that. And uh, yeah, shipped over 68 whiskey. So spent a little time here in San Antonio. Okay. Going through Fort Sam. Fort Sam Houston. Mm-hmm. That's funny how that works out. Yeah. Man, Air Force making you wait and then freaking out. Yeah. So is that your word, words of advice or lie to the recruiter? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, so actually, I, I was. And I showed up at MEPS pre-ship. Yeah. And they're like, hey, that scar in your looks really, really fresh. Like, no, it's a few months old. No, no, no. Well, hold on. Birthmark. Yeah, <laughs> it's a birthmark. Well, yeah, four of them. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I told them about just a small meniscal tear and it was going to push me back almost a year. God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems to have worked out in your yeah, favor. Worked, I think everything happened for a reason. Yeah. It worked out well. <laughs> Where did that scar come from? That's not mine. I've never seen that yes. before in my life. <laughs> so remind me your enlistment dates again. I enlisted in 1996 mm-hmm. and old. retired in 2016. Yeah. 2016. Yeah, January 2006. And then I'm over in the Texas Guard right now. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So you had to experience, you got to experience 9-11. Right. right. Prior and I, post. Right. And I, I've talked to other guys about this is the pre-war military was completely different than the yes. wartime military. Mm. And we're transitioning back into that peacetime military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's it was more dress and ceremony and that kind of stuff beforehand. And when the war started, it was like, hey, let's just get ready for MOBS. Yeah. Um, well, that's a lot more fun than dressing, you know, like drill and uh, ceremony. Like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and two, uh, the training was... Very Vietnam esque, mm-hmm. uh, and then just flipped a switch after two thousand one. It did. I was part of that at NTC is we did the op four. We were still doing the old Soviet style op four training, mm-hmm. and then uh, midway through my time there, they swapped over to the uh, civilians on the battlefield training, mm-hmm. where we, you know, we were permit party. We were dressing like in civilian clothes, and we were the bad guys, kind of for the op four. Okay, and uh, so it was completely different than the Soviet style training. Yeah. We had all grown up. My generation grew up fighting that way. Or, yeah. Or training to fight that Patrol way. bases in the woods. And <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's crazy stuff. And then you got to enlist in 2006, pretty much at the pinnacle of when we were figuring shit out. Yeah, right. So, saw obviously saw 9-11 in school. I think I was a sophomore. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously had a stirring effect, but I, I didn't run down and, and enlist the day after I graduated. Well, I joined my senior year, right? The delayed entry program. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was full tilt, right? The surge came in 07, and it was just uh, you're basically home year going a year after that. You hit that deployment cycle. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. So where were where was your your both of your first duty stations? Uh, I was Nellis Air Force Base, Las yeah. Vegas for F-16s um, out there. F-16s, and then when you initially joined the Army, so when you transitioned over to the Army, where was your first duty station? 
Uh, uh, it was interesting because I was trying to get on the counter drug team. And then, uh, so I joined out of Las Vegas, the Nevada National Guard mm-hmm. uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment there, okay. the 221st. And uh, so we went straight to the field and started working on tanks. They said, oh, you're jet engine qualified. Tanks have a jet engine. There yeah. you go. Boom. <laughs> working tanks and that. That was the worst. Everything was heavy, dirty, filthy. Yeah. Aviation, everything's clean. Yeah. You know, your tools are organized. Bright and shiny. Um, right. What, why is that? Because uh, aircraft, you can't pull over and park if it breaks. You know, with tanks, you pull over, you call a tow truck. With aircraft, you, you got to drop. So That's fair. So they, they, everything's really tidy on the aviation side. Yeah. So so it's it's not like a leadership thing that could be like, hey, maybe let's no. tidy up these tanks. Right. It's, it's a little more bit. of a area of focus mm, it's less yeah. important on the ground side than it is with the aviation side. Yeah. So. so you mentioned the counter drug program and that's something that not a lot of people outside of the guard uh, have experience with or outside of, I guess, three letter agencies and, and things along those lines. But can you talk a little bit about your time in, in counter drug? Cause I, I, I worked counter drug a significant amount in California and that was always one of the most exciting things that we did outside of combat. Oh yeah. It was, uh, the good thing is it was all real world missions. Yeah. It wasn't constant training. And like aviation is usually all training. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was just constant real world missions all the time. And, uh, you know, I did a little bit in uh, Nevada. Okay. And Las Vegas. And then I transferred to Texas counter drug and we worked mainly the border. Okay. Uh, just flying the river, looking for cartel members and scouts trying to stop that. Who are trafficking drugs across the right, border. Fighting the drugs. Yeah. Uh, we would find a lot of human smugglers, which we weren't supposed to have anything to do with that. We're just for drugs. Mm-hmm. But when you come across something that needs uh, interdiction, we're there. Let's do it. Yeah. Did you hear recently about the human trafficking mm-hmm. case that happened? Here in San Antonio. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was something like 50 people trapped in the... On the semi? Yeah, in the semi In the semi were cooked to death. Had no AC in there. Yeah. And he fuck, just bailed out and... And just himself. Yeah, let these people like cook in the back of the truck. Right. It's like $6,000 per family or something was the charge, right? Just God. to let them cook in the back of a truck. I can't imagine. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, and that that kind of stuff is not like making big time news at all. You know, oh, it's yeah. crazy, yeah. crazy. I mean, we have what, 10,000 Texas National Guard members on the border right now. Something so, like well, that. Somewhere around that number, right? It's being advertised. So yeah. they're still working it. Well, you got to imagine how many people are actually making it through and ending up in these circumstances. Yeah. Like the, the people who are trafficking these these other people across the border. Right. Are not to be trusted, obviously. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're the like, coyotes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Coyotes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, some nasty, nasty times, but I don't, I don't mean to digress at all on that. But um, so you ended up kind of going a different career field than counter drug. Or did you do uh, that? I for- actually retired from counter drug, so, uh, active duty, but through the Texas National Guard. Okay. That's where I finished up my active duty time and was able to retire that way. So the the thing about the counter drug is, correct me if I'm wrong, if it's, it's for you, but for, for us, when you're stateside, if you're a guardsman, you come home and you still are in the guard full time in the military, but you're operating under counter drug. And then when it's time for deployments, you still do your spin up and then you deploy yeah. as a part of the military. That's exactly right. So you basically have two different jobs. Two com- like kind of combat oriented jobs. Some, somewhat. Yeah. Mm. Counter drug is a lot. I mean, it's different. It's still exciting. It's different than being like a heart technician, you know? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Or coming back and being a mechanic somewhere else. Yeah. So, so walk um, us through some of your experiences with that. You got any good busts? Yeah, we had some, some pretty good busts. Um, well, one was up around the Dallas, uh, the, 
the facility up there around Grand Prairie mm. is they found like 30,000 plants right outside the, the, the base up there. And they'd been <laughs> flying by it all the time. And then one day, one of my buddies was on that flight. They flew through and they're like, hey, here's a bunch right here. So they yeah. just, they landed and found the 30,000 plants right there outside the, outside the army base. That's a lot of plants. Mm-hmm. So you guys land and eradicate it and then go burn it? Or? Right. Uh, as as yeah. far as us being military, we yeah. were hands off. Okay. The actual drug. Okay. But uh, the law enforcement guys would go in and clean it all up and they just let us know when we're flying next. So yeah. We'd drop them off and then we'd go back to hotel room until they were ready for us again. Yeah. It's an interesting thing being exposed to that side of the military because it's not very well known about. Right. We're, we are doing stateside operations. I mean, it's not federally owned, so it is a state-run operation. Mm-hmm. But it's a weird crossover that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Right, right. It, it, when I found out about it, I was like, if I'd known from this from the beginning, yeah. I would just would have enlisted here and did my 20. Yeah. So Yeah, it's basically like being in the DEA or something along those right. lines. That's all we worked with is DEA, Border <laughs> Patrol, you know, DPS. All those uh, three-letter agency people. Yeah, that's that's cool guy stuff sometimes. Huh? Oh, right. yeah. So what was your experience <laughs> with the DEA agents? They were nice. They were cool guys, you know. Yeah. Just kind of <laughs> keep to themselves. Right. Yeah. Low, low profile. Yeah. We'd work with some of those guys, and you couldn't even tell they were law enforcement. They, I guess they were narcs. They were all tatted out. Yeah. Long hair. It's pretty neat. Yeah. What a what a world that, it, that would be <laughs> right. to, to try to infiltrate a drug ring. Oh, yeah. My God. So, uh, anyway, so we, we as a 68 Whiskey, um, you went into aviation. So, later on, right? So, deployed with him in aviation. Uh, initially, though, I ended up on a police training team, pretty much straight out of basic training. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually joined straight into the Guard. I was in paramedic school at the time, so I wanted to finish school and then look at going active duty. Mm-hmm. But with as much Title 10 federal active duty time as there was in the Guard, right? I stayed on active duty for a number of years there in a row. Yeah. So, yeah, joined in, police training team, didn't know much about it. E3, you know, brand new medic. Hey, let's go to Iraq. So we uh, would go to Samar, Iraq, and uh, we had a, a district we were, you know, responsible for, mm-hmm. seven or eight Iraqi police stations. And it was going around, checking the police every day and going on foot patrols and, and mounted patrols with those guys. Man, how was with, that experience? With just you? Or no, no, so did you have a, a so team? We, we had a team, right? We had typically two squads would go out at a time. Okay. And it consisted of uh, mostly MPs, but we had some medical personnel as well. So uh, it was an experience, right? There was a lot of times you'd show up and there was nobody working the police station or uh, they didn't have fuel to go on patrol or they, they had weapons, but no ammo. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just kind of like a an optional work yeah. environment. Yeah, exactly, right? You never knew who was going to be there when you when you showed up. Yeah, and what was your kind of day-to-day, like, when you went out on patrols with them? Yeah, we would uh, just obviously mount a patrol to the, to the Iraqi police station, go in and meet with the chief, uh, which ended up, you know, you sit around, drink chai for a couple hours. That's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. You have to get them up, say, hey, get your guys up. We're going to go patrol the city. And we were right outside Samara, so pretty pretty busy area in 2007, 2008, that yeah. whole Golden Mosque area, right? And uh, there were certain neighborhoods they didn't want to go to. Like, they knew the danger areas. And if they didn't want to go, we wanted to go. We'd press even harder. Yeah. Let's go there. Right? So, you could kind of tell from their body language where they wanted to go and what was safe. They wanted to go hit the safe route, come on back to the police station, you know, drink some tea, have some lunch, and be done for the day. Yeah. Um, you know, so we, we ended up moving south, uh, about an hour south of Samara. Uh, the police chief there was very progressive. He wanted to go out. And, and do raids and hit houses at night. Hmm. And that was uh, that was an experience, right? Going out on foot patrols and hitting houses with Iraqi police. Yeah. It, it made for an interesting year. It kept me very busy. 
What okay. kind of hits were you running? So uh, the police chief would text us, right? Say, hey, we, we know where a bomb maker lives, uh, you know, or we know where you know, bad people are. And we would try to verify that the best we could. But a lot of times it was so dynamic, we would just have to take the chief at his word for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would just go roll those guys up, make some arrests. We'd put them into the bats or the hide system, see if they hit on our system. If they didn't hit on our system, then he would put them in his jail at the local police station. Okay. Yeah. And that's got to be an interesting experience, just taking this guy's word for <laughs> yeah yeah so we we questioned it towards the end right are we yeah. are we really just being his muscle right yeah actually that's what i'm we're, thinking we're, we're right away people out yeah it's uh we we questioned that and uh, we would have some locals come and tell us that that's basically what was happening in some scenarios oh wow is we were being the muscle for this guy to strong arm people because he wanted their property oh wow. and what's the easiest way right it's just oh, tell, yeah. tell us they're you know they're they're a bomb maker and yeah exactly the house and, and they're in jail now oh man yeah yeah Man, that that has got to be rough. And two, going in as a '68 whiskey, your medical professional, as operating kind of as a police contingent, right? That's got to be interesting too. Yeah, no, definitely something uh, you probably did not predict that you'd sign up for. For sure, it, it was an interesting dynamic, though. Right to be a member of that team, we uh, we were living at a small patrol base that was shared with the Iraqi Army, okay, and a military training team. So like an eight-man team that was training those guys to be independent. Mm-hmm. But we were working with the Iraqi police every day. And we found they don't have the best relationship, right, between the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police. So it was definitely an interesting dynamic around our patrol base. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I, I mean, that, 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 is, that is so interesting. That is an interesting concept because you kind of go in in the military with a, a conception of like, kill, kill, kill the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're kind of working with the locals. Yeah. How did that throw you off a little bit? Well, I don't know that they have the same idea of community policing as we do. Mm-hmm. Right? I see their police force as more of what we would consider military here. Okay. Right. Like they're, they're setting up checkpoints. They're, you know, they're putting up blocking stations when they're hitting houses, they're going on raids. Mm. Uh, so maybe more of a, a SWAT process is here. And obviously they weren't that far advanced. Cause like I said earlier, if there's 10 guys in the police station and three of them have rifles, we consider it a win. Yeah. Or they all had like the old Browning high point pistols, but oh, yeah. no one had any nine mil ammo. <laughs> oh <laughs> so, man. Yeah. It was interesting. That's funny. Yeah. It's kind of a show of force. Yeah. Check like, the like box. Kind of, right? Like they, they looked apart. They had the security in place, but, uh, you know, no, no fuel in the vehicles and no, no ammo for the weapons. And it, it, it really varied from district to district. There were some really squared away Iraqi police that wanted to make a difference. And there were some that were just there for an easy paycheck. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. so that was your first deployment, right? Yep. That was uh, 2007 and 2008. Okay. So relatively Pretty quick after you joined then. Yeah. Yeah. I think I graduated like August, September of 06. And then uh, January 08, we're getting ready to deploy. Okay. And then how about you, Jason? So you're, I've obviously been in the military for uh, a little bit longer at this point. Right. When was your first activation and, and deployment? Uh, my first deployment was stateside. It was to NTC. So okay. I was a guardsman and they were saying, uh, you get MOSQ'd, we can put you in counter drug. You start doing missions. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, then we got activated and went to NTC for two years and did Op 4. Okay. And then uh, after that, then uh, 2012 was my combat deployment. Your first. I only had one combat deployment. First combat deployment. But that's where you guys met, right? Only right. had one. Yeah. You oh, said only. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Limited experience with the combat stuff. No. You know, I, I, I just, I have to bring it up is that, you know, ne- never discredit your service and, right. you know, what you've done for this country. That's 
that's a huge thing thank you. to to deploy in in a combat scenario. So wow. uh, thank you for that. Thank and you. let's uh, walk through it if you're okay with that. So how was your experience in 2012? Oh, uh, it was um it was interesting because I was I was a counter drug guy working Lakota helicopters, mm-hmm. the the Eurocopter. And uh, they were just standing up a medevac unit. We had 12 months to get a unit stood up and in Afghanistan. So they pulled a whole bunch of guys and they did the same thing on the Mississippi side. Yeah, okay. And uh, so we did Texas side. And uh, I got pulled November and we deployed in January. And they needed an experienced Blackhawk guy. I hadn't touched a Blackhawk in three years at that point. Been working just Eurocopters and 58s. And uh, so they pulled me over there like, hey, he's a he's a Blackhawk RL3 or RL1 uh my vision goggles, all that stuff. Yeah. Ready to go. So uh they sent me down there. I was like, hey, I'm the new guy here. And then we just started flying Hawks, you know, and started training for that mission. And then in January, we got sent to Fort Hood. We're up there for like two and a half months for pre, pre-MOB spin-up training. Yeah. Uh, got to know the guys a little better. And then by March, we were in Afghanistan. So we went to Bagram. Mm. And then from Bagram, they split us out to our FOBs. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Where were you operating out of primarily? Uh, Sharana, uh, me and Eric were both at Sharana. Okay. And uh, we had uh, OE, Organi. I don't know if y'all are familiar mm-hmm. with that, yeah, RCs. And uh, so we would revolve, or re- revolve to OE for two weeks at a time, and we'd go back to Sharana, and we'd go back to OE, just back and forth like that with different air crews. Yeah. First up, second up, medevac. And this was January of 13? Or January uh, 12, of 12? It was March of 2012 when we actually... Yeah, first first mission was okay. like March 20th, 2012. Okay. Right, that's first mission in Afghanistan. And uh, I don't know if it was a bad omen for the rest of the year, man, but first mission in Afghanistan, we, we mixed it up, right? So we were ripping out with the 82nd Aviation Brigade. Okay. So uh, I was on first up as the medic. Their crew chief was from the 82nd. So on the next bird, we went 82nd medic, you know, 171 crew chief, okay. our, our guy, just to yeah. get that experience. And uh, first medevac drops, and we we don't realize it's uh, it's green on blue. Oh, and so we land, and there's a very strange dynamic on the ground. Yeah, obviously, in your flight helmet, you lose a little bit of that situational awareness, um, you know. But but it ended up being a, a, a American KIA, and then two wounded uh, Afghan Army members. Damn, right. So that's that's a tough way to start your deployment right yeah. right out the gate. But so that was March March 2012. Can you build that, uh, build the picture a little bit, like uh, daytime, nighttime yeah. mission? Yeah, I, I, so Jason, you, you weren't on that one, right? It was uh, me oh, and Chris Renault. Mm-hmm. So yeah, first mission, it's daytime. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very comfortable being dismounted away from the helicopter. Okay. I mean, my first two deployments uh, to Iraq were, were as a ground medic, right? Second deployment was was with the infantry. So I had no issue dismounting, coming off comms and, and walking away with my rifle. Yeah. So we, we land at this Afghan army compound and no one's outside. Mm-hmm. Everyone's inside, right? So I disconnect and go inside with my rifle. And I can tell there's this really strange, you know, dynamic, right? Oh, yeah. Like there's blue weapons on green soldiers and it's like, all right, what's going on? Yeah. So I asked where the wounded was and they point me the direction of the KIA. So I, I'm going to take him first. So mm-hmm. we start strapping him up and I see the two Afghan army laying there wounded, pretty, pretty severely wounded. And I asked for help to load him on a stretcher or a litter. Yeah. And they, they pick the guy up like shoulder level and just drop him from there onto the litter. I'm like, all right, this is this is really strange. And here comes my crew chief like running into the gate, like screaming like, hey, this is green on blue. Yeah. Let's get back like, to the helicopter. Like, get back here, dude. Yeah, he was like, hey, you never never go where I can't see you. Well, I had to, right? Because they yeah. weren't bringing the casualty to me. Like your, your typical point of injury pickup, you know, you think about you land, 
the field medic, you know, or the line medic brings you the patient mm-hmm. on a litter. They have their card filled out. You get a quick report right outside the rotors or at the door. Yep. But that wasn't this scenario, right? Middle of the day, you know, a uh, U.S. soldier had sat down to eat lunch. And I guess they, they walked up and, and shot him point blank in, in the Afghan army compound. Just executed him. Yeah. Very unique situation. Mm. Unfortunate. Uh, but that was that was a scenario around that one. So we got back. We 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 discussed that one. You know, the thing about medevac two is the, those two Afghan army soldiers made it back to the FST and had to go straight into surgery. Okay. Well, then we had to fly those two another thirty minutes after that post surgery, right? To yeah. uh, to do a tail to tail transfer to get them to get them to a higher level of care. Mm-hmm. So we met some PJs, right? We we landed, do a tail to tail swap. So that's just twice that we have to handle, you know, these uh, these Afghan army guys that had just executed a U.S. soldier. Uh, the first time is much easier. The second time, they're post-surgical. I mean, they're both on ventilators. They have chest tubes. And that's something the average 68 whiskey is not prepared for. Sure. Right. That was before this new F2 paramedic critical care program came about, right? So yeah. you just didn't get that as a traditional 68 whiskey EMT basic was that level of care. Yeah, I mean that's that's much advanced or much further advanced than uh, traditional EMT. I mean that's that's near like trauma nurse at that point. Yeah, so actually, kind of what the army <clears throat> did to bridge the gap is they were putting critical care nurses mm-hmm. uh, on on the flights. Yeah, they didn't fly all the point of injury pickups because that's that's not their world, mm-hmm. right? But for all the the critical care transfers, they they tried to have them on board. Yeah, for the long term stabilization. Yeah, I'm, yeah, you know, the the average sixty eight whiskey wasn't equipped to handle a ventilator long term. Uh, you're talking about titration sedation, yeah. right? Your titration sedation and and managing chest tubes or X fixes for you know ortho injuries. Yeah, it's a little bit beyond uh, traditional emergency. Yeah, emergency you, you medicine. You don't quite uh, get that in your sixteen weeks at Fort Sam. Yeah, no, not nearly as much. How's that making you feel? You know, yes, with so, these with you know helping these patients out who have done this heinous act. Yeah, it's, um, I was, I was very conflicted in, mm-hmm. in that one. Uh, fortunately, I, I did not have them on my helicopter first flight. We, we didn't put them on chalk one. Yeah. Right. With our, our, our hero mission. As we I, I'm it. just saying, uh, and I'm not a medical <sighs> professional, but they would have never made it home. Um, <laughs> you know, they would have never made the, it home. The, with the me. medic on the second bird was, uh, from the 82nd aviation brigade. And, and I will say he, he's a better person than I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know if they would have would have you know survived or they, they may have survived on their own, but they probably wouldn't have got a really high level of care. Yeah, you know, you you get into a certain mode, you know, in the medical community though, where you don't see a face or a name. It's just operating on them then and there, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably what your colleague is thinking too. Is just how do I save life on the situation I've been dealt right here? Yeah. You know, for sure. I'll and you have say, to, you have to, and you know, compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. You, you do, right? And Jason and I, so I haven't seen this guy since 2013, probably. We talked about it on the way down today, though. So medevacs are really strange world in the fact that there's only one medical personnel on board. Yeah. Right? You got two pilots, a crew chief, and a medic. Yeah. And you start throwing some of the most severely wounded or injured soldiers, uh, you know, that they'll see very grotesque injuries in the back of that aircraft. And a lot of times we need an extra set of hands and it's this guy, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, hey, grab me this, do this. Yeah. So they're not ready for that, right? Most of these guys are not equipped to see that kind of trauma. They've never seen it before. Um, you know, I'll say that um, Stan Shepard is a guy, he, Clawson mentioned 
we went, we went from being on paper to in country in 12 months. Yeah. So they had six helicopters, we had six, and we were gone. Quick turn. Mm. Yeah. So Stan did a really good job of going and finding medics that were either paramedics already on the civilian side. Mm. Uh, like myself, they were you know ER nurses or yeah. going through nursing school. We tried to get guys that had a ton of civilian medical experience as well as combat deployment as a medic. And so that, that, that makes the difference. I think at the end of the day, if you do it on the civilian side versus in the military, it's still medicine. Mm. Right. So you just you don't look at the face, you see the patient, you treat the injury type, you treat the, the wounding pattern and you move on. Mm-hmm. You know, something we talked about. There's a way to look up that patient when you get back. Right. You have their information. You can follow them in Alta. You can see, OK, they made it back to Germany. They made it to Fort Sam. Yeah. They made it to Walter Reed. I never did that. Mm. I, I, I made a choice in the beginning that the 15 or 20 minutes I had that person on my helicopter I was going to do everything I could to save their life and try to improve, right, their uh, the quality of their life afterwards. Yeah. But I was never going to follow that patient and see what their outcome was because I didn't want to second guess my my treatment. And that takes, you know, that's that's a different step in that you take it personal when you do that, right. you know, and and that's when things start to hit you heavier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's back it up a little bit. How did you guys meet? Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pre-mob at Fort Hood, you know, we got there first because we were coming from San Antonio. So we flew our helicopters up there and we set up. And then the next day, six Blackhawks flew in and we're like, hey, that's the other half of our team. Yeah. We got two months to get to know them, learn to work with them and get to get to country, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, him being a medic, me being a crew chief, we really didn't mix at all during pre-mob. It was mm-hmm. they were doing medic stuff. We were doing maintenance, maintenance training, hoist training, mm-hmm. trying to get our younger guys trained on the hoist and ready. You know, if we're going to Afghanistan mountains. We're expecting to be using the hoist quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so we focused on teaching some of the younger guys just aircraft maintenance for the most part, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we end up getting to country and then we start to make buddies with the medics because now you're on first up, second up shift with them. I think we did about 48 hours, 48 hour shifts. Okay. And then uh, so we just got to be buddies, you know, playing a lot of chess and checkers and that kind of deal, watching movies. And then they say, you know, the the buzzer goes off and we're out the door as fast as we can. You know, we yeah. all knew our roles and I think we were pretty good. I think we were like eight minute average or something off the ground. Damn. So yeah, that's a really quick turnaround. Yeah, time. We, we didn't care, man. If it was urgent priority routine, hey, like why wait? Yeah, it, we're gonna launch in that eight minutes. We're you know, we're gonna get up and get out of there. Mm-hmm. So to back up to Fort Hood, I'll give a lot of the credit to our command. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, Captain Eubanks, our XO, Texas guy. Our commander was from the Mississippi side and uh, Major Wilkins. They sat down very early and said, we're going we're gonna to integrate now. Okay. So my, me being a platoon sergeant at the time, they said, you're getting a Texas PL, right? And vice versa. Mm-hmm. So if you were a Mississippi PL, you got a Texas platoon sergeant. Okay. They tried to mix in the Mississippi medics with the Texas crew chiefs, right? Same thing with your PC and your PI up front. Yeah. Is uh, you really, really make sure we had a mix there. We, we all wore the same patch and it was full integration from, from the, the start. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's that's a really healthy mindset for it because uh, I've seen rainbow deployments like that before with other guard units where they smash them together at the last second. Yeah. And there's always some issue with, and it doesn't come down to interpersonal issues usually. It's a difference in training mm-hmm. that one one groups had one very very high focus on just medicine or mountainous flying. And the other side is on tactics and hoisting. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have these two different. Uh, experiences and these two different skill sets that you've been working on for the past few months. And that's where your focus is at. 
And when you come together, you're like, oh shit, like we haven't looked at this at all. Right. So it's either a detriment or it can be really beneficial depending on how you, how you pair it. So yeah, I think if you would have taken two infantry units and done that, right, it yeah. wouldn't have worked well. So, I mean, aviation, military aviation is usually a little more, uh, you know, seasoned folks, right? You yeah. go higher level there. And, uh, you know, I think very early on it, it was, hey, this isn't about us, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we have a real world mission. To me, it's the kind of the most fulfilling mission in the military, right? Is the yeah. medevac world. Oh, yeah. And it's about that patient. You know, everybody blended very well and did mm-hmm. a great job. Yeah, that's good. How about how about you, Jason? How was uh, your very first medevac mission in combat? Does, um, it, does it stand out for you? I know it stands the, the out for me. The first one doesn't. I think it was a, a routine. Okay. Like heat casualty or something like yeah. that. And mm-hmm. really, they just wanted a water resupply. Oh, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Hey, could you bring a couple duffel bags full of water to, yeah. to get yeah. this guy? We're, we're kind of thirsty. Right. Yeah. But it did progress to uh, some more difficult missions, emergence, and things like that. And uh, I was talking to Eric about this earlier. Is As a mechanic, we're there to fix stuff. Yeah. But sometimes with people, you can't fix them. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to process for somebody. I can fix everything. Yeah. There's a way to fix everything on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. But uh, transitioning that to, to people was a, was, was a hurdle. Mm. You know, sometimes you just, they were KIA now, they died on your helicopter. And now you got to go home and just think about that. You're like, what did yeah. I do wrong? Well, maybe you did everything right, but it, you don't feel like it. You know? Yeah. Was that something that you struggled with to, to learn how to, to cope with or compartmentalize? Like Not so much on deployment mm. because you have you have your brothers right there with you all the time. Yeah. But after deployment, once you you don't have your buddies with you anymore, that's yeah. when it got really difficult. Yeah. So just sitting there laying awake, thinking about it all night, every night, just man, what did I do? Could I have done something different? Mm. And uh, we'd have when we were real short-handed as uh, during the Obama years. So we'd pick up like four or five guys sometimes, and the medics busy. Yeah. So here I am trying to do medic stuff. And, you know, I was a combat lifesaver, but I wasn't set up to do all this. And he's like, yeah. give him this drug. I'm like, I don't even know what that drug is. Yeah. And you're just screaming over the, you don't even, your hands are full, so you can't hit your ICS button for your comms. Yeah. So he's screaming as loud as he can, so I can hear him to try to get this bag. No, that bag, this bag, no, that bag. Okay, open it. What is it? Is it blue wrapper? Got that. Okay, what do I do with it? Oh, man. So we did uh, a lot of, I think at one time we had like six wounded on our helicopter. And I'm just, which one do I start with? You know, and Damn. just being a mechanic, just like, hey man, this is not really my specialty here, you know? Yeah. Is it, so is that something that, did they start making different decisions with like your guys' loadout and your guys' crew? Yeah. So if you think like the mic model, right? Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have mics. We were RC East. So I mean, we were, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 feet at times. Yeah. So we were running slicked out alphas and lemas. Okay. And so no only, power. No, the only thing yeah. in the back, right, was... uh his seat and my seat and the mm. two windows and we kept one or two seats on the back wall. Mm-hmm. Everything else was just wide open in the back. Okay. You know, so we could go three litters across the floor if we needed to mm. and two in chairs on the back wall. It, yeah. got, it got pretty pretty full back there really fast. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it. Especially, well, I mean, being short-handed too, like only fine <clears throat> with one medic. I mean... Yeah, so I mean, we always we always ran, uh, you know, first up, second up. So second bird could come in and land if needed. There were a few times where... Um, you know, if we saw there was going to be one or two, you know, severely wounded casualties, we would make the call yeah. at the LZ. Hey, let's let's double up. So we would we would put two medics on one aircraft, yeah, and uh, and fly it like that. Okay, whatever was best for the patient in that situation. It's so funny the differences between like the way that the Air Force and the Army does things because we would fly with you know 
two, three, or four PJs in the back mm-hmm. of a helicopter that's already 5,000 pounds heavier than what you guys are flying with right. in the same area. Like our, our idea was, well, bring as much shit as possible and like maybe you can carry one person out, whereas you guys are, that's really bring right. as little as possible. It's oh, really yeah. funny you say that, man. We yeah. were doing like a big conference call in RC East one day and they wanted us to go through and brief our capabilities, right? Yeah. Like, hey, we're slicked out Alpha's Lima's and like no elevation's too high. Like we're coming. Yeah. And yeah. PJ's like, well, we have scuba. Yeah. <laughs> There's one lake. Yeah. I think it's like Bandisari over near Gaza. Yeah. Like, we need you there. We'll call you. Yeah. It's, it's just funny what they had. Yeah. It, it is funny. And they're like, yeah, that thing's 35 feet deep. We could get to the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah. We'd uh, do patient transfers at the Air Force sometimes. Hmm. And uh, so we'd get out, no guns. We had our nine mils. We'd go do the transfers with the Air Force or the PJs. Yeah. They're all Ramboed out. Yeah. I'm like, man, they got all kinds of toys yeah. on them, you know? Is that a seal walking towards me? <laughs> yeah, so much shit. Extra duty. I know that wasn't their primary function. But yeah. so what they would do at Bagram, I believe they rotated days with the 82nd hmm. for kind of first up, second up type. Oh, okay. Because we, you know, we couldn't leave our service ring. So we would have to land at a, at a fob midway and do a tail to tail transfer, okay. just a hot transfer of that patient, so they could take them up to Bagram to be you know, evac'd out. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you guys have a mission that you guys flew together, right? Right. Or like right. A, a pretty, a pretty hairy mission that you guys flew together. Yeah, it was a rescue hoist mission. Yeah, no, it was a. I don't want to. I don't want to switch topics too quick, no. but I, right, I do want right. to talk about this because it sounded like a pretty moving and pretty powerful moment for you yeah. guys. You you were the medic on it, so you want to yeah. Man, so so you know, I'll I'll start it off. So uh, episode forty four we listened to where you guys had the pilot from Alaska, Mm -hmm. the the commander come down. He talked a lot about dynamic hoist, the master hoist class, and that's great. That stuff we weren't you know ten years ago we started the dynamic hoist, Mm -hmm. but we weren't doing the stuff they're doing now. They have the electronic load stabilization stuff Mm -hmm. now, Mm -hmm. and it's amazing. So we we trained hoist. We knew in RC East. We were going to do a lot of hoist. Yeah. So uh, we're at Oregon E. Um, we do 14 days on straight there when you're at Oregon E. Okay. So it's just just two crews that live there. It's a smaller fob. And uh, they came and said, hey, we're closing fob Tillman. Hmm. And we're going to shut it down. So we're going to send a convoy all the way out there, right? And uh, it's going to take multiple days to get there, multiple days to load, multiple days to get back. So they briefed us we're going to be busy that week, yeah. more than likely. You know, Tillman's right there on the Pakistan border, pretty close. And uh, traditionally, one of the busier fobs anyway. Uh, but there were several, you know, hundred guys on OPs all along that route, uh, looking out for the convoy, providing overwatch. Mm. And uh, we got the call right at dusk, right? So it's it's not quite goggle time, not quite dark, you know, not quite daylight. And uh, that, uh, you know, we had one U.S. wounded on an OP, uh, we looked it up real quick. Super steep OP, you know, gunshot wound to the right shoulder. So we're we're out the door in like six minutes. We're we're in the air heading that way, and uh, we had an amazing pilot in command, uh, Mr. Pedro Vargas, CW4, still in right now. That you can fly anything, right? C12s. I mean, everything. If it's out there, he's probably flown it. So um, you know, I had the Texas crew chief. It was well known that Texas had more hoist experience. So if you if you were doing a hoist, you wanted a Texas crew chief in the door, mm-hmm. and. Um, the initial call was, I'm going to go down on the jungle penetrator. Okay. And I'm going to bring the casualty back up on the jungle penetrator. Um, it's very street, very steep ridgeline. It's right at dusk. So I don't I have my goggles on, but I don't have them flipped down. Hmm. I get down there, and this dude's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, like 240. <laughs> this, thing, this dude's probably carrying the 240 as like his dismount. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big dude. 
And he's got a GSW, the right shoulder, through and through. Probably not going to be life-threatening anyway. That's a perfect wound right yeah, there, man. So that's, they got the small, that's a million-dollar wound, yeah. yeah. So it's right next to his Oh, just right. million-dollar wound right there, yeah, exactly. man. Exactly. Oh, I got shot in a big deal. Especially right for a big boy like that. That's yeah. good. That's a big dude. Right? That's kindergarten so. cop right there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, man, they had him snowed, though, right? They'd give him a ton of fentanyl or ketamine on the ground. And I'm like, hey, yeah. this, this, me and this 6'5 dude is probably not going to ride the jungle penetrator back up. Yeah, so we put him. The skid's only seven feet long. Yeah. Right. So he's pushing the skid anyway. And I think I was like 215 at the time, plus my gear, probably what, 250, 260. Yeah. He's a solid 250 to 270. So we're probably like 540, 550 <laughs> to come up on this hoist. Maxing yeah. it out. Yeah. Small grizzly bear. Max out yeah, yeah. Super, super steep ridge line here. Right. And um, the call was, we, we came in 70, 80 feet to let me down. Mm-hmm. Well, these poor guys have been there for a week on that OP, and we're just blowing their stuff off the mountain, <laughs> yeah. right? Like you see a guy's rucksack go tumbling down. <laughs> he's it's like, like right. he's cussing us, right? Yeah. He's blowing all of his food, his sleeping yeah, gear. I'm going to have to go get that. <laughs> we're like, hey, let's let's do the pickup at like 150, right? Because we got like, what, 209 feet of cable or something. Let's right. do it about 150. Yeah, so it's going to be a big one already. Yeah. And you're only at 150 for about two seconds. Mm. The seconds you slide from that ridge point, yeah, you're 400. thousands, yeah. thousands of feet. I mean, it's pretty steep ridges. Mm-hmm. So we got the guy packaged up in the sked, call these guys back on station. We had the, their wireless system. And uh, and they, they come in and pick me up. And man, I'm not sure if you guys have seen the video. It's it's out there. Yeah. Right? And uh uh, we're, we're coming up, and I feel some slack all of a sudden, right? So yeah. I'll say I was going to stay on the ground initially and run this run the tagline for the sked. Mm-hmm. But there were still troops in contact. They said, hey, can you do it barrelman, right? And that's where you come up with the sked. Yep. We had talked barrelman. We had practiced barrelman set up on the ground. Ooh. We had never done a dynamic hoist barrelman live because we could not get command to sign the risk assessment. Oh yeah. They deemed it too dangerous in training, right? Awesome. So that was failure from the beginning. Yeah, I heard that mentioned on 44. Yep. I feel slack in the line. And then all of a sudden I feel tension and a snap. I I was I was able to talk to the infantry guys a couple days later. They're running the tagline, they drop it. When they drop it, two guys dive on it. And when they get their hands on it, they both adrenaline's running, right? They get heave. Yep. And it breaks the weak link. So now we're a hundred and probably twenty-five feet from the aircraft, oh, probably three thousand feet from the ground with no tagline, right? Yeah, Jesus, just me and this this monster dude in the sked, and we're just along for the ride, man. Oh man, we uh, we started spinning, and it seemed like an eternity. I watched the video. I, have, I don't watch the video. I watched it today, and it was only a minute and forty seconds. That's a long time. Like only? Yeah. Right. Yeah, That's only. a long time only? spinning. It seemed like it was hours. Oh, like, we yeah, what's followed. the average roller coaster? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Fair. We, we were being yeah. followed by an Apache gunship. So all of this is on tape, right? It's their gun cam <laughs> footage. <on> flare. <laughs> yeah, and you can hear right. you can hear their commentary, right? They're they're freaking out in yeah. the cockpit. Um, I, I'm intentionally trying to stay quiet because I know he's probably really, really tight in the aircraft. Yeah. I talked to our pilot in command on the way down here today, Mr. Mr. Vargas. Hmm. And he's like, man, I transferred the controls to the PI multiple times. I was, he said he was turned around in his seat on his knees trying to look back, right? Because they sit in the front left. Yeah. Trying to look back and make sure he won. He was still in the aircraft, right? Yeah. And, and two, that, that he, he was expecting a cable shear. Right, like, yeah. like the, the spin was. I was thinking I'm about to watch these guys. I mean, it was fall pretty brutal all the way down. Yeah. So I kind of reached that point in my mind where I'm like, "What do I do?" 
And uh, that's when our pilot, Mr. Vargas, he goes, Jason, you got this. And I was like, that's when I dropped on my knees and I started reaching down trying to control the spin. Yeah. But before that coming up, I was watching them. I was thinking oscillation. It was sling loads. And I'm like, all right, we got to start some forward flight. We're clear forward obstacles. They're trying to go to my training. But then you hit that cone of downwash, rotor yeah. wash, and you start to spin. And the spin gets worse as you get closer. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, now I'm thinking, these guys are about to fall. What do I do? So I brought them up, brought them up under the aircraft. And I'm using my feet. I'm kicking them in the head. I'm kicking them, trying to stop them. And I'm like, this is ineffective. I got to try something else. Use the tire. So I stood up and about the same point, I, they must be swapping the controls up front. I fell with all my gear on one of the rings on the floor of the hel- helicopter. Mm-hmm. And my knee just locked up. Couldn't even bend it really. So I just dropped down on my belly and I just started reaching. So I, I was like, I don't know what to do. I'll just yeah. grab this thing. So I grabbed it. I felt my wrist spin up in there, but I got them stopped. And I didn't feel any pain at that point. So I got them up, got them in the aircraft and... uh I remember when we, I shut the door, we're both on our knees. We just looked at each other like that stare and we just high-fived and kind of hugged. And we both looked over at the patient in the, in the <laughs> sked. He's like this. He's all like, what the fuck? Fetting <laughs> <laughs> all out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to find that dude, right? Yeah. Like I got, I got told you, I, I, I want to go back really quick. Yeah, yeah. I didn't look this guy up because when we got to country, I had a medic from the 82nd named uh, Sergeant Eric Williams. Mm. He stayed over with us to help us for a couple months transition. Mm-hmm. He was in his room, get ready to catch a flight home. Mortar kill, it came in and killed him. Uh-huh. Right. So July yeah. 23rd, 2012. Right. So we met this dude in March. He stayed with us a couple months, passed on a wealth of knowledge because he'd been doing it for a year. Yeah. So he volunteered to be the only representative from the 82nd. But he passed on that knowledge to me of, hey, don't don't look him up. Don't look back. Yeah. But uh, just just great dude, right? What wealth of knowledge. Um, I want to find that guy, though. I'd, I'd love to look him up and ask him his perspective of, of that spin. Yeah. Because uh, his nose was bleeding. Mm-hmm. His eyes were bloodshot. Oh, my nose imagine. was bleeding. Like one of my, one of my uh, sclera was just blown out, right? Like bloodshot. <laughs> you know, terrible headache. And I thought that was really all that was wrong. Like, hey, we, we made it. We got up here. Everything's good. Mm. Like, man, on the way up, though, like we started that spin. And uh, they, they used to have this ride at the fair called like the Gravitron. Like it would just yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Right? on the and wall. That's yeah. what it was like, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I'm already sitting back, you know, kind of in this position. And man, we start that spin and just the force of it, right? I'm kind of sucked back even more. So I'm trying to reach up and hit his foot every yeah. time we come around, but I don't want to pull him out of the aircraft. Yeah, because then we're you know world hurt, world hurt. So he, he holds his arm down, and finally, like I hit his arm every time I come around, and it, it slows us down enough. But man, there there was a point there on the way up. I just thought to myself, man, we're we're a month away from going home, yeah. and and is it is this cable about to shear? Because there had already been a few deaths in Afghanistan where hoist cable sheared. Yeah, right. And yeah, to drop people. And, yeah, you know what? Uh, we had been been doing that so long all year, man. The only thought was, did I really just go pick this guy up that shot in the shoulder, and I'm about to kill him with a hoist? Yeah, right. Like this this is not what I signed up for. Like I want to get this dude home. But uh, we got back to the FST there at Oregon E and um, carrying this guy in. And as soon as I set him over on the litter or the stretcher in the FST, I can't feel my left leg at all. Man, it's just completely numb. Mm. No idea what's going on. So the the doctor threw me some Celebrex. And I was like, you probably herniated a disc. Take this Celebrex, right? So they would drop me at the FST and they would go refuel and I'd beat them back at the helipad. I get back to the helipad and they're still at fly. I'm like, man, what are we doing? Yeah. What's another mission? Right. Like we're going right back out to that uh, same spot. 
So there's really no time to debrief or even worry about it from that one because we just went right back out and flew another medevac 20 minutes later. Damn. You're but, banged up, man. Yeah, no, it's uh, I couldn't feel my left foot at all. I mean, just completely numb. So I'm kind of dragging it, right? So, yeah. um, I mean, nothing made. I herniated two discs, right? L4, L5, L5S1. Okay. So they're they're kind of desiccated out. There's really nothing there. The same one anyone who's ever flown on a exactly, helicopter right? ends up I with. Yeah. 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 It's kind of expected. Uh, but we only had a month left in country. So it's like, man, I'm not going home. So you just keep you just keep flying. I think we went right back to the same ridge the next night and did another hoist with the skid. Oh, and so, yeah, yeah, there was like seven hoists that week in, in the RC East area. Damn. And injuries for you? Your, you said your, your arm was messed up or? My, I injured my knee. I ended up flying two more missions in country because mm-hmm. we were shorthanded already. So I was like, I can still, I can still perform. I can yeah. still help. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to medevac me to Germany before it. And I'm like, no, man, we're, we're going home a month. I can do paperwork. I can go get lunch. I can do something yeah, to help. That can be useful. <laughs> right. So I ended up staying there. But uh, yeah, my knee, I injured my knee. And then uh, my wrist, my finger, my thumb. You know, it, it's not life-ending or anything like that. But it's just just kind of annoying. Yeah. I mean, it just, just knowing that you're about to get your hand torn up, like, you, you don't right. stop something that's that going that fast without pounds yeah. without yeah. knowing that you could potentially tear your arm off. You know right. what I mean? Well, that didn't even cross my mind. It was more, I was just desperate to like, I got to do something before this cable breaks. And isn't that crazy how just when one thing goes wrong, everything starts going wrong. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, you trip and bust your knee on a D-ring. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you live without that part, and, and you're just like, yeah. yeah, like what is happening, right? right, right. <laughs> and you're nice. getting spun to death over here, literally yeah. spun to death. Yeah, I, was, I was in the spin cycle, man. You know, it's the internal hoist too, right? So yeah. those things are uh, traditionally not the the most reliable. They've gone to the external on the bike. Yeah. It's supposed to be really fancy now, but and then it's interestingly better, enough, <laughs> interestingly enough, as the hoist lifts, it spins faster too. So yeah, then yeah. the chance of searing it. Goes up more even likely. more. Yeah. You know, so it's like, okay, do we leave? You can't leave them. So you have to make a decision, mm-hmm. you know? And that's when you're there to save somebody. So to build the picture a little bit, if no one's seen their video specifically, I think we can splice in the video because there's Absolutely. just a full external video of it. There is. Um, so we can probably splice that into this. But if you haven't seen Grandma get spun on a helicopter, that video, it's. Out of Arizona? Out of Arizona. You saw it's that. a great, great depiction of, of what happens when a tagline breaks and you continue bringing the hoist into the helicopter. It's like a ballerina. When they're spinning and they bring their arms in, they spin 10 times faster. Mm-hmm. The harder they hold it, that exact thing happens as you're bringing the hoist up. And there's no way to stop it going up. There's no way to stop it going back down. What do you do? Like right. there, there is no right answer. We you, had an extra level of, to worry about too. We were in a yeah. combat zone. Exactly. Yeah. We don't just want to land out here. We don't know who. Yeah. You can't just there, set it down. You know? So yeah, I didn't even realize we had fallen off the ridge of the mountain at that point, and we were like, I don't know, eight thousand feet above yeah. the ground. And later, I watched the video. I was like, Holy shit, man! Yeah. Not to mention, what? you're three times heavier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Than <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Than the average. It's uh, man, you know, it, it was a heavy deal, right? So the whole hoist, uh, the, the good thing that came out of it is a lot of training, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, yeah. I think a lot of people have seen that video now. I know they reached out to uh, Mr. Vargas. He had to declassify the gun tape video yeah. and, and they asked for it to use in their, uh, maybe the master hoist training program. Okay. Because what do you do there? We had a lot of people armchair quarterback it. You know, the next day I got a phone call from, we had two CW5s with us, right? 
I think they walked everywhere together just so people would freak out. Yeah. But I mean, these guys had years, years in the air. You're talking like what, 15,000 hour guys or something. Right. Yes. Yeah. So if yeah. there was a right answer, they would know it. Yeah, for sure. I bet they didn't they have like, one. Well, they, they asked, they said, why didn't you reach over and grab one side of the skid and tip it to stop the spin? It's because you've never done a barrel minute in training. Yeah, well, guys, it sounds great too, but to just a force, right? Mm-hmm. When you're 540 pounds combined in a yeah. spin that fast, you, you can't tip it. Yeah. And if you you do, can't touch anything yeah. at that point yeah, because you're, you'll you're just be laid back. Yeah, it is like the gravitron. It is. Mm-hmm. If you exactly. do tip it, though, <laughs> what's well, my question was? What's the load force you just placed on that cable? Yeah, right. At, at that point, if yeah. you send a shock up the cable at that that fast of a spin rate, that's not something you think about in the moment, right? But uh, that, that's one thing, you know, military aviation and, and medevac has come a long way. I know that we're, we're still doing hoist right now. Yeah. And that's, to me, it's the most dangerous piece of equipment on that aircraft. So if there's anything I can uh, I can put on the, the junior flight medics and crew chiefs uh, or even the experienced guys coming up and, and really commanders is don't be scared to sign off on that risk go out and train dynamic hoist, yeah. right? What's going to be better? You have, a, you have a training incident, right? Or you end up with a death in country of multiple people because that would have been myself and the casualties to have two deaths. Yeah. So yeah, train it, train it, train it, you know? That's, yeah. what it, that's what it takes though, is someone to get seriously injured or to die for change to happen, Yeah. right? And then they consider putting it into training. But consider this, we're no longer in an active, in an active war. So all the experience you currently have is all the experience that you're getting for the next 10 or 15 years or yeah, yeah. as we have it planned right now, right? Mm-hmm. That's the experience that's alive right now. It will retire in the next few years and you will have none. So either take and heed what they've learned and apply that and continue training to that level or stop doing it completely. Yeah, that's, uh, what, that's yeah. what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Captain Eubanks, I talked about our XO. He's a major now. He's actually the Alamo Dustoff commander here in San Antonio. Okay. And they're deployed right now. Yeah. And I got a phone call a few months ago and it's like, hey, this is Jeremy. Uh, man, will you will you go with us on this deployment? I, I got to have some experience as a medic. Mm. But I, I was down doing the border mission. Okay. With, with OLS, so yeah. I, I couldn't leave at the moment and it just wasn't right. But, uh, but yeah, that, that experience, like you said, you, yeah. you got to rely on it. It's invaluable. Yep. I mean, and it's really what makes the difference at the end of the day. Because when you are put in a position like that and you're like, okay, uh, I can't stop this spin. I, I'm willing to injure myself to make sure that I can try to save these guys' lives so I don't, you know, kill two people while I'm trying to go out to save one of them. Like, right. if you were put in that situation, you were ready and willing to, <laughs> yeah, break your arm. Right. Get a big, big fat spiral fracture or whatever by putting your arm in that thing. Uh, well, I, I really didn't think of it that way at the time. It was just more like, I got to stop this. Yeah, or they're going to die. Yeah, right. exactly. I, I really thought any second I was going to watch them fall into the ground. Yeah, and, and that would be... I just like froze for a split second, which to me, I felt like I froze for minutes. Yeah. But then luckily my pilot in command, Mr. Vargas, he just turned around and he said, Jason, you got this. Snap me right back in and and whatever, you know. Yeah, and that, w- that would be a hard, hard few seconds to... To, yeah. to watch rough, and, and just yeah. all within a couple minutes this is happening yeah we watched it on the way here so from the time we lift off the ridge line uh with the sked in barrelman to the time we slide the door on the aircraft closed it's a minute and 42 seconds yeah it seemed like a lot longer oh i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure uh you know i'm sure there's going to be a couple of guests out there that are like well that sounds fun Oh yeah, uh, you're you spun so quickly that your blood vessel and your eyeball burst. Yeah, I'd say probably <laughs> zero out of five. Do not recommend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just had to reiterate that point. You spun so quickly that 
you're you're putting so much pressure on your capillaries there. Yeah, yeah. No nosebleed, two disc herniated, and uh, and and just the busted blood vessel in the eye. That was just a centrifugal force of that mm-hmm. spin. Right. So hey, very fortunate though, man. Very minor back surgeries, and you know, back to doing what I want to do. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. forces, you know, are nothing to be messed with. You know. Yeah. We we have a, a guest coming on in the future that uh, ejected at like 600 miles an hour oh, wow. from his F-18. <laughs> 600 uh, miles an hour. Physics, man. And literally <laughs> his body turned to liquid. Yeah. His oh, body yeah. turned to liquid. And I'm like, you know, everybody's like, I feel the need, the need for speed. Let's, yeah. let's do that now. <laughs> there is such thing as too fast yeah. for the human body to, right. to handle. And that's one of those situations. That's insane. A minute 40, 42? Yeah, minute 42 from, from takeoff to spin stop. So, yeah, we, we got, we'll spice it. We'll send you the video. Spice yeah, it in. we'll include it in there. The, oh, man. Yeah. The, li- the link is underneath. Yeah. Click it now. Link in the bio. <laughs> 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 Click it now. Oh, man. And, and then you guys have been friends ever since this? I mean, nothing like a little adversity uh, to, right. to put you guys. Team you up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if it was uh, us just trying to defer it, but, you know, or, or put it out. We, just, we haven't really talked. We, we, you know, Facebook, social media, you, yeah. you see each other. But uh, today, when I stopped and picked him up on the way down, it was really the first time I've seen him since then. Just and it just, you home. pick it right back up, yeah, right? you do. Oh, yeah. It's just like best friends ever since. You yeah. Know, yeah. The whole time. That is yeah. so common. I, you know, I, I think that most of the civilians who watch this show could probably uh, relate in the fact of, of graduating high school or college. You know, mm-hmm. you might be best friends and then you just disappear. And when you come back together... But it's a little different when you have experience like this. Right. Yeah. You, you shared something. Most like, hey, bro, shared. I saw you spin like 300 <laughs> miles an hour, dude. <laughs> yeah. We shared I saw you cheat death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was, that's cheating death. And, oh. and those close, nothing like a couple of close calls to really just bring you together. Mm-hmm. You know, but that is, that is amazing stuff. So, so now, now what does your guys' day to day look like? Oh, well, I recently had got uh, my kids live with me full time now. So mm. military, divorced, uh, kids never, never got to be a full time dad. So when I got full custody of the kids, I'm like, you know what? I'm fortunate enough to be retired. Yeah. I'm going to do this dad thing. And dude, it has been awesome. Yeah. Just hanging out with my boys all the time. I started a, a part time hauling business. So I, I haul things when I have free time or do some moving things. Okay. Uh, make some money and I take the boys with me and we work together. And, uh, oh, that's, that's awesome. Great. And they just turned 17. So day one, they turned 17 to get a phone call from the recruiter. Like, no, no, sir. Yeah. Ain't doing yeah. that right now. Now's not the time. Yeah. Now's not the time. Right. Maybe yeah. go to college first. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I can transfer my benefits to them. So okay. that up and then go earn your own benefits after that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Take your time. You right. know, Take yeah, what, your time. what a good age too. I mean, 17 years old, you got to actually go enjoy your time with them and Right. It was, They're actual people then. The gym, yeah. Teaching them all the things I feel like I know, you know, trying to save them some struggle in the future. Yeah. You know, and then uh, my wife, Katrina, she's awesome. So we get to spend a lot of time because she works from home. Okay. And I'm home. So nice. So we're good. The yard looks great. You, know? you got a, the real good <laughs> retired life then. Right. right. It right. sounds That's nice. Really good. good. That's not bad. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Hey, real quick. I want to say, man, so my kids now are 14 and, and 10. So at the time of this medevac deployment, uh, they were three years old and three months old. Yeah. And I went to my wife and said, I'm going to volunteer to go to Afghanistan with a medevac unit. <laughs> and uh, she's a saint, right? She was like, you know what? This is what you've been training to do. If you stay home all year, you're going to be miserable. I'm going to have to hear about it. So you better go. Mm. <laughs> <Right>? So <laughs> I uh, love hearing yeah. stories like that. This is a support, support system. Yeah. It, too often you find in relationships that 
they go, they start going at odds and attacking who you are as a person. Not, not necessarily, it, it goes on both sides, right? But, you know, who you are fundamentally was a rescuer, right? Mm-hmm. You're, 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 you're a medic at heart and that's your job and that's your purpose. And sometimes you see in the relationships, uh, they're at odds against that yeah. and it's competing against that and, and it's not fair. So it's always amazing for me to hear a spouse that is so supportive yeah, I don't know if it was a support or she just didn't want to watch me mope around the house. For a year, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, now and I work for a company out of Irving, uh, Visient. We're a healthcare consulting company. Mm-hmm. It's been amazing, right? So I take these experiences as well as uh, years as an ER director. Yeah. And I kind of go in and watch ho- hospital operations and consulting and see how we can make them more efficient, whether it's, you know, working with the ED director to make them a better leader. Mm-hmm. So I work from, work from home, work remote. Nice. And, uh, yeah, kids are fourteen and ten, right? So good to watch my watch my kids play sports, and uh, you know, taking my son up to West Point this fall to watch a football game, trying to trying to steer him that direction. Took him to Colorado Springs two weeks ago to the Air Force. Oh hell yeah, Academy. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So like, bonus we'll time, Here's brother. Bonus times. Yeah. Doesn't it feel like that? I think the military does a really good job of of teaching it really how to value life. Mm-hmm. You know, it exposes you to some pretty nasty situations, near death experiences. And oh yeah. Coming out on top and spending time with your kids and your family. I mean, man, mm-hmm. it's nothing better than that. I'm pretty great. And building on what you're saying also is like you you learn something in the military. You know, you're a first responder. You're used to helping people, rescuing people. So when I retired, I was kind of in that weird period where I'm like, what do I do with mm. myself? You know, yeah. I, I'm aircraft can't let me get a job at the airport. That's unfulfilling. Yeah. Uh, so recently I've, I've started this rup group with some buddies at the VFW. And I was trying to figure out a way is how do you, you know, the VFW is great for getting us together, but you end up binge drinking. That's what we do. In our yeah. Culture. For 37 cents a beer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just get hammered all the time. So I was like, let's get the rucks out and we'll start rucking to, to burn off our energies and keep us from drinking so much. So yeah. now we've got like 12 dudes going, uh, we call it the sweaty sacks ruck club. <laughs> sweaty sacks ruck club. Right. So okay. we all meet up doing that. Nice stuff little and, plug uh, there. Yeah. But it's given me that focus and that drive again is like, Hey, if I can, if I can set an example or, you know, use these guys as my example yeah. to, to live a healthier life, fitter life, you know? So that's been, it kind of anchored toward that whole first responder mentality you get from the mentality from the military. Yeah. You know? So like a new purpose, a new focus or kind of thing. Yeah, you, know, you know, when you expose people back to those similar situations where they had that camaraderie and brotherhood and sisterhood right. and all that stuff, it really just kind of brings you right back to it. And it's very therapeutic. It's organic too. It just flows. It is. Yeah, that is that is amazing. Well, it has been excellent having you guys on the show, uh, share, sharing your stories. Um, glad you didn't spin yourself to death. I think that would have been a first for me to hear that story. But, uh, spun to death, <laughs> spun to death, almost. Yeah. I'm sure there's an account out there somewhere. I'm not gonna it probably. I'm is. not gonna look it up though. <laughs> One more time, tell the audience what the name is of the guy who got shot. Yeah, Sergeant Eric Williams. No, sorry, who was shot? Or that, that you want to reconnect with? Oh yeah, I don't know his name, right? I, I did not follow. I did not follow. Oh, okay, him, right? Yeah, something that Eric taught me is, hey, yeah. don't don't go look these guys up. Yeah. Okay. So, so you I, never I even caught a name. Okay. Yeah, so just, maybe this podcast and the video goes out, he may say, hey, that was me. And yeah, you'd be yeah. surprised when you drop a name. Sometimes we get people well, that we can recap. So what was the date? Do you guys remember the exact date? November fourth, two thousand twelve. November fourth, two thousand twelve. If you got shot, you should know it. And this was at what? What Bob? Bob Tillman. This was Bob RCE's Tillman. between OE and Tillman out on an OP. 
that should be more than enough to work right. with. If you were in the area, one two eight Black Lines, I believe, is yeah. who the landowner was. So yeah, if you were in the area at this time, hit me up, hit Dave up. We're gonna get this guy reconnected with. Uh, both of you guys reconnected. Yeah, like see him too. That'd be yeah. awesome to have you on for a reconnection episode. Yeah, so, he may have a different cool. perspective than we do. He might. He might. He might. I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm <laughs> well, sure he'll be. fine. You did end up saving his life. Ultimately, it was. Just, he just got shot and then yeah. almost spun to death as well. We're trying to spin the bullet out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Well, thanks right. so much for for opening up and share, share, sharing your story. I can't even talk today either. Yeah, fresh um, out of words. But thank you so much. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, fellas. Well, this has been the Medivac Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for watching. We'll see you next time. See you guys. Bye.